0: Okay, so we're glad, uh, glad everyone's here, and uh, and again, happy Mother's Day to everyone. It is May the eighth, two thousand twenty-two, and the world still counts time by Jesus, and that's significant. That is significant. Uh, let's have a let's have a word of prayer, and we will begin this morning. Dear Father, we're grateful to you for this day. And we know this day is your gift. Every day is. Father, we, I remember Paul's sermon in Athens. You are the one who gives life and breath to all. So we thank you for that gift, Father. We praise you for your greatness, For the minuteness and the complexity of your creation. It's far, far beyond our ability uh, to comprehend, but we can recognize something of the designer, so we thank you and praise you. Father, we pray for our nation, for direction, for our nation. I pray, Father, for that that you would give us leaders in government locally and nationally, Father, people who recognize your authority and people who are, who have integrity and who are wise in governing. That's our prayer. We know you've set up kings and take down kings and, uh, you're working in the world, and Father, in that we do pray for peace in the Ukraine, for that horrible mess that's going on there. Pray that it might be your will for that to stop soon. Ask your blessings, Father, as we study today. We pray your, your blessings on the study of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John 18. And Jesus has just finished in John 17 a prayer with his uh, with the disciples, soon to be apostles, but disciples, in the upper room, and uh, he has dismissed them at the end of that prayer. And now he's going to move from that prayer with them to his own prayer. Uh, Some some alone time, as he frequently did, withdrew to a a private place to pray, and so that's what he's doing as we begin chapter 18. Uh, John does not say much about what happened about the uh, details of the prayer in the garden. He just introduces it, verse 1 of 18, when Jesus had spoken these words... The last of his of his prayer there in seventeen he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered and that's really that's all that um, that John says about that i want to I want us to look at a couple of passages that talk about this in some detail it's It's important I think to what we're looking at here to understand, so go to Mark if you would, mark. You turn in your phones to Mark 14.
1: <laughs> Some of those old people can only see phones. We can't see our Bibles
0: anymore. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Get large. large font. He couldn't carry a Bible that big, maybe. In Mark 14. Mark's description of this, starting, I want to read 32 through 36, I guess. Mark 14, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Uh, 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus did not want to go to the cross and the humanity in his human form great dread as it would be for anyone Luke 22 Luke 22 uh 39 through about 44 of Luke 22 And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, and when he, had, uh, when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you might not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Uh, His soul was grieved to the point of death, and then he's praying in agony and sweat, As it were, great drops of blood. Um, probably none of us have ever prayed that hard, huh? Speak for myself, I, I haven't. I've, I've had some earnest prayers. Jesus, I've I've said this before, as Richard said, he's, he's, he's knowing what's coming and yet maybe not completely. And the reason I say that, Jesus is about to take on the sin of the world and he has never experienced that. That's an unknown to God to take on sin. All of the shame, all of the guilt all of the violation against the nature of who he is, God. Pure and perfect, spotless, the scripture says. He's taking on that sin. Can you imagine that contradiction? And just a word to us. Uh, not to equivocate and to rationalize and to say, well, this doesn't matter that much And to compromise with sin, well, it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. That is, uh, when we feel that way or say that or act that, we are missing the point. Jesus did not go to the cross for me and you so that you and I could smile at sin. That we would just compromise with it, that it's no big not that big a thing. welcome back, Tim. Good to see you. Tim's back from he's out of Africa. They're going to make a movie about you someday, and that'll be a great name for it. How easily we are tempted to compromise with sin. And rationalize, well, it's okay if I do this or that. Not that big a deal. Well, yes, it is. It's that big a deal. Jesus is taking that on. He's taking on that not only the the hideous sin that we see everywhere that is hideous to us, and it was certainly is certainly so and was to him, but just the little sins that we the that we put up with and compromise with. It's okay if I do this. It's okay if I do that. Well, is that a compromise with your Christian faith? Is that a compromise with your example? Is that a compromise with what you profess to be on Sunday morning? Is it a compromise that you're okay with? Well, Jesus is sweating blood, literally. And he doesn't know what it's exactly going to be like to carry sin, unknown to him. Number two, he knows he's facing death and he's never experienced death. God is life. And the scripture says about Jesus and him was life and the life was the light of men. He is life. He's the definition of life. He gives life. And he's going to go through death and that's an unknown and he's never done that. That's totally foreign uh, and against his nature, that God would die. Just going through that process is, is a horrible thought to him, and he's praying to the Father, Father, please, let this cup pass. I don't want to do that. With you, all things are possible. But if it must, your will be done. Never carried sin, never sinned, never experienced death and about to die. And maybe the worst of all, if there is a worst, there are all three equally worst, I would submit, he's going to be separated from the Father. Isaiah tells us it's not God's hand that's too short that he can't reach out, it's not that it ears, his ear's dull of hearing that he can't hear you, he says, your sin has separated you from the Father. Sin separates And Jesus is about to be separated from the Father. And that's never happened in eternity. Never happened in eternity. And he's facing the prospect of being separated from his Father and and an aloneness that only God could even contemplate. And he is sweating blood because he doesn't want to do that. He does not want to go through that. So again, let's please not take our view and compromising to sin lightly. It's worth a second thought, folks. We're called to be children of light, not children of compromise. And the world's values and customs and the commercials and what is okay and says it's okay, we're flooded with that continually in our culture, flooded with it so that our senses and our sense of purity gets compromised and gets forced into compromise continually. The pressure, the compromise, it's not that bad. God saved us because he wants us to be his children of principle and light in our world. Hey, Gary. Sir. It's pretty amazing that
1: Jesus came from heaven. He knows where he's going back to. He knows God intimately. And he takes on this human and he realizes the pain and suffering that he's to just get ready to go through. And he doesn't really want to have to do it. I mean, he knows in the twinkling of an eye, you know, he's going to be transformed. But to know, he knows the pain and suffering.
0: Yeah, Jesus knows what he's about to go through. Carolyn? I remember
1: hearing that there actually is a scientific uh, phenomenon
0: that you can't bless. Yeah. Wet blood, severe Severe stress. But I have heard that too, Carolyn, that it, under great stress, capillaries can break in the, the surface of the skin and you can bleed. Have you ever heard that, Derek? Do you know if there's any truth in that? Derek says yes. He knows things like that. Eric? There's several things I take away from this prayer in the form of an example. One is, it's okay to pray for what you want. Christ knew what the plan
1: was, and he still prayed, let it pass you. Yes, And that's okay. The caveat being, whatever needs to happen. The second thing I take away from is what I would define as courage
0: doesn't want to do it. He prays three times every pastor, and then he doesn't mention it again. He just goes headlong into it and says, here we go. That, in my mind, is the definition. Jesus, uh, if you could hear Eric, um, thank you, Eric. He's not afraid to pray for what he wants to pray for. So, that's good. Now, James tells in the letter that James wrote. He says, a lot of times you don't get what you ask for because you're asking for selfish motives. You're not asking for spiritual reasons, but you're being very selfish and self-centered, and so uh, that's why there are quarrels among you, and you don't always get what you ask for. But it's okay to pray for these things. However, we should say, according to your will, as Jesus did. And then Eric mentions the courage that Jesus had to pray that prayer. And then I'll, mention, I'll add a third thing to that, too, Eric, is that uh, we don't always get a yes in our prayers requests. Jesus got a no because it's according to God's, the Father's will. You know, a lot of times we say Jesus and we say God, we're really meaning to say Father because Jesus is God, too. But it may not be the Father's will. And so sometimes we are, the answer to our fervent prayer is no. Uh, I'm not telling you why, particularly, necessarily. But there are reasons, whether we're asking for the wrong thing or it's just not in God's will or His timing. Sometimes it's just no. Sometimes it's later. And that's all a part of faith, isn't it? And uh, this programming note, we will not finish the lesson today just so you know that because we're nearly halfway through. Tim. I think I for you to
1: safety for this hour. No, it was for this very
0: Tim saying there there are obviously multiple reasons why Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me, uh, and we obviously don't know all of that. I mentioned three at the beginning. He's going to carry the sin of the world. He doesn't. That's against his nature. He's going to go through death. That's against his nature. He's going to be separated from the Father for the first time in eternity. That's against his nature. Certainly, he didn't look forward to any of that. Scripture says his soul was grieved to the point of death. And he's praying, please let this pass to the point of bleeding. And then he says in in another prayer, let this pass. But I know that all things are possible with you, Father, so is there anything else? Um, The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Despised it. But for the joy set before him, he endured it. And I would suggest we're the joy. Uh, So I'm grateful that he did. For all the reasons that he had for praying to the Father that this would pass, that there would be some other way, it was not the Father's will And I would, let me suggest something else as we kind of get into the weeds here a little bit. Uh, Praying to the Father that this would pass. Ultimately, when he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Now he knows he's giving up some element of control here. He's giving it up. He's allowing sin to be to take on sin. He's allowing himself to go through death, and he's allowing uh, himself to be separated from the Father. And one scripture tells us he could have called down ten thousand legions or ever how many of angels, but he didn't. He said, "Your will be done." So I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is showing a measure of faith in the Father to bring this to completion in the proper way. He is giving up some control. When he says, I'm going to go through this, I'm going to allow myself to go through death and separation and the sin of the world, he is trusting, there's an element of faith in Jesus, trusting the Father to bring this all into the will from eternity before the foundation of the world Jesus was crucified in the father's plan.
1: I would go so far as to say
0: absolute trust. Absolute trust, Richard says. So let's turn. So so here's what I'm saying. It's Jesus Jesus faith or trust in the father completing this. And his faithfulness to the father in going through the death, that allowed God's righteousness to be given to us. If he had not gone to the cross and gone through that penalty, we wouldn't receive God's righteousness. It's only by the sacrifice of the cross that we are able to appropriate or be given, I should say, God's righteousness given to us who are unrighteous. Jesus' faith and trust in the Father, His faithfulness to the Father's will, allows God to give us, to pour out to us, His righteousness. With that said, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. And Bob Odle mentioned, talked about this in a Wednesday night class about three years ago, and I thought did a really good job with it, and I'm coming back to that. Uh, there's a phrase in the Hebrew, I'm not sure how the Hebrews pronounce it, but the English, the English People say, Pistis Isu Christu. I don't know the proper way to say that, Richard. But it's the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ in the Hebrew. So if you have a King James version of the Bible, you will have one reading. If you have a later version of the Bible, you will have a different reading. Is anybody cold in here? It's cold in here. That's why we should sit closer together. But I digress. There's a strange reading in Galatians chapter two that in your in the newer translations disagree with uh, let, let me say this before we read this. That the phrase pistis isu Christu can be interpreted two ways. And there's a scholarly debate, and if you Google this, if you put those words into Google and look this up, you will see a lot of articles written about the scholarly debate of pistis isu Christu. What does it mean? Does it mean faith of Christ or faith in Christ? Paul's use of that phrase occurs in six verses in the New Testament. Now, we certainly know we must have faith in Christ, obviously. But he uses a different phrase in six locations that can be equally and maybe preferably translated faith of Christ or faithfulness of Christ, which opened up God's righteousness to us. So if we read this passage in Galatians 2 the way your versions have it, verse 16 It's a bit redundant. Read with me verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Isn't that a little redundant? Three times in a row to say that? We're saved by faith in Christ, so we've believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And King James doesn't read it that way. They interpreted faith of Christ. So if you read it that way, here's what you get. We're not justified by the works of the law, but through the faith of Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faith of Christ Jesus or the faithfulness of Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law. The point being that it's Jesus' faithfulness at the cross to God's will that, op- that allowed God to give us his righteousness. One more reading on that, and then we'll move on. Romans three twenty-two. There are about six, like I said, six passages where that phrase is used. And in those six passages, it t- it's talking about the faithfulness of Jesus to his Father and his trust to his Father that allowed this gift of righteousness to be given to us. In Romans 3, verse 22. Uh, I'll start with 21. No, I'll start with 22. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ is for all who believe. And there's no distinction. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. Anyone in here have a King James Version? Betty, you got King James. Yeah. Read it loudly. Twenty-two Romans three, twenty-two. Yeah. So as she read, the faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is through the faith of, through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe, or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I just throw that out for your thought. Um, doesn't change what we believe, any of that, but Paul uses it six times. And I think, obviously, from the prayer, Jesus is putting a lot of trust and faith in the Father to make this thing work. Ken.
1: And Bible Gateway has about 100 translations. I went through each one and checked it, and one-third of them use the faithfulness of Christ in those passages, including one of the latest translations, the New English translation.
0: Faithfulness of Christ is used and about a third of the translations Ken looked up. So, so the, but the debate goes on. I tend personally, I think Galatians 2, 16, talking about faith in Jesus, to have, so we believe in Jesus, so that we can justify by faith in Jesus. I don't think Paul would have said that. Maybe he did. That just seems very redundant. But if you read it as the faith of Jesus or faithfulness of Jesus, it flows very smoothly. Keith?
1: That faith in Christ was done in Luther's time yeah. in the 1500s to support the idea that it's our faith that saves
0: us. Yeah. It's not our faith, it's Christ's faith. Yeah. Ken's point is that later translations use faith in Christ to emphasize or to teach it's our faith that saves us, but it's not our faith that saves us. One, it's God's faith. It's God's faithfulness and God's gift to us. Number two, it was Christ's faithfulness at the cross that made our salvation possible. So that for your thinking. And uh, as we wrap up, John 18. One, two. Yeah, I, I taught, I taught a First Peter about three years ago and we, for a quarter and we covered about a chapter. Uh, I think a chapter and a half, actually. So, let's see where I am. All right, verse 3. So Jesus, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went out with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Jesus, uh, with, along with the chief priests, they gather up a group of soldiers and such. The word band, which is commonly used, is also used for cohort. Uh, there's a little debate about this, too. How big was the group? Was it a, detach- was it a detachment from, of Roman soldiers, was it, or was it really a band from the temple police, or was it a mixture, and how big was it? Matthew says in Matthew 27, uh, Judas came with a large crowd. So it wasn't 20 guys. Whatever it was was a large crowd that they came to arrest Jesus with. Um, A cohort could have been 300 to 800 soldiers. Probably was not that many. Maybe it was 100. I don't know. We don't know. But Matthew says it was a large crowd. John says it was a detachment, a band or a cohort of soldiers and officers from the chief priests. And so they're loaded for bear. They bring weapons and all that. Uh, to arrest Jesus. Interesting in verse 4, Jesus says, uh, knowing all that would happen, he came forward and said to them, who do you seek? And uh, interesting thing here, they say Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth was not a glamour city, village. Nazareth was looked down on. And it's interesting uh, the, the chief the chief priests in that group they had uh, they were just full of uh, contempt for Jesus and so they uh, they I would suggest and a lot of writers suggest it's a point of derision here where they say we seek Jesus of Nazareth, you know in other words that guy from the other side of the tracks, even before there were tracks, the other side of the Yehuda. It was out of Judah. Galilee itself was not really highly thought of. And Nazareth was, of course, in Galilee. And so anyway, uh, of interest, Scripture says Jesus would be referred to as the Nazarene. And a point of interest here, when, when Paul, Saul at the time, was on the road to Damascus to lock up, to apprehend and lock up Christians, and when the light shone on him on the road... And he's knocked to his knees, and he can't see, and he's, well, he sees this bright light, and then he's blinded, and he says, Who are you, Lord? Interesting response. I shouldn't have gotten on my knees, but if you've got a chair to push you up with, you can make it. As you get older, you learn leverage points. While you kneel by the bed. Or you kneel by the bed. That's why you kneel by the bed. Hopefully not a soft mattress. Because <laughs>
1: Nazareth fits
0: with a stable and a manger. Yes, Nazareth fits with anything contemptible. So when Jesus appeared, back to my story, back to his story, when Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. So Jesus chooses to refer to himself as from that other side of the tracks, city, village, not city. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. You know, I started to say, I started to mention another city in Colorado, but I won't. But anyway, that place. Let's say that, let's use another one, Lyman. I don't have a thing against Lyman. I'll take that back. Jesus is always identifying with the lowly. With the lowly. And he does it from heaven. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And we're tempted to always kind of push away from what we view as lowly and... Un-something. God doesn't. He always goes to the lowly first, to the poor, to the sick, to the infirm, to the outcast, always. Even from heaven, Jesus does the same thing.
1: Well, in life, he was the one who was willing to touch the leper. Yeah, he was. By touching him, he made himself unclean.
0: Jesus was willing to touch the lepers and to become unclean by touching them. Of course, it didn't affect him at all. Uh, So, you know, when uh, I had a note here, when Jesus is calling the apostles, the disciples, and he comes upon Nathanael and calls Nathanael, and they say, uh, well, it was it Andrew that goes to Nathanael and says, we found the Messiah. And... He's this guy, this teacher from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, it's just well known. That was a point of like, are you kidding? From Nazareth of all places? So when they come to arrest Jesus, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Now, the the translations usually add he. In the original text, it doesn't have the he, I am he. It says, I am which is the same thing Jesus told one of the Pharisees back there in the first part of the book here before Abraham was, I am. So when he says, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am. And a strange thing, when he says, I am, the soldiers fall back and they they draw back and fall down. They're there to arrest him. Who are you hunting? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And there's this reaction of Back up. Like that line from Josie Wales, he can do some things. You might not have seen that Western, so that's okay. Several times, me too. He can do some things, Lige. They knew he could do some things, and they fell back. That's an interesting phrase, they fell back there to arrest him, but they did. He said, again, the second time, who are you after? They said, well, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I've already told you I'm he. They said, well, we're here to arrest you. He said, well, let these go. You're not after them. They don't have anything to do with this. So he gives them the terms of his arrest, really. He said, don't, don't arrest my disciples here. They're, they're innocent. you want wanting me, so take me. And this fulfills what he says in John 17... To the Father, He says, "Not not one that you gave me is lost." He, he, because if they had arrested any of the disciples and taken them away with them, they might have been victims of the same thing, not only of scourging but of crucifixion, because they're part of this insurrection. As the charges ultimately come to be, but He didn't. He said, "You don't need them. Let them go." So they agreed. Okay, we'll let them go. And then Peter whacks off the ear of Malchus. Peter's got his sword. I don't know if he's left-handed or right-handed. There's a near miss. Can you imagine how close a sword comes to something else if it just clips off your ear. Close shave. Jesus says, "Peter, put the sword up here. Here, Malchus. Oh, here's your ear. Let's, let's fix that. Let's put that back on there. There you go. All good. And then arrest the guy. (sighs) (laughs) That's when Jesus said, "Peter, we're not going to fight. Shall I avoid the cup the Father's given me?" And so he he goes with them. So the passage that uh, you think about is Philippians two, about five through eleven. Jesus took on being in the very nature of God, wasn't something that God, that Jesus held on to, but let go of, and took on the form of a servant, found himself in human form and became obedient, even unto death, the death on the cross, whereby we are saved. He says, have this kind of mind in you. What kind of mind is that, Paul? The kind of mind that says, I'll be a servant, and I'll give up my life to follow God's will. That's, it's kind of hard for folks that are conditioned to be very selfish. Conditioned to be very selfish, self-centered, self-thinking. What do I want to do with my time, with my stuff, with my money, with my career, with my, just name it. It's my, 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 my all the time. And he says, no, God wants something else for you. He wants you to take on the mindset of Jesus and become a servant and give up your selfish interests for the sake of following the Lord's will and doing what God wants you to do. As we make our decisions about whatever we're doing or going to do or planning to do. James said, don't say I'm going to go here and do this or that. Say if it's the Lord's will, we'll go and do this or that. Because you don't know if you've got tomorrow or not. We are totally dependent on the Lord for every day's breath. So shouldn't we be willing to be his servants? He is the one who gives life. And he is the one who holds our future. And he is the one who loves us. Lord willing, we will continue at this point in a week. Thank you.
1: Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing
0: to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to
1: join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.